BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. A note, this episode contains descriptions of graphic violence. Listener's discretion is advised. Judgment Day had arrived. February 23rd, 1965. In Sao Paulo, Herbert Zuckers was getting ready to board his flight, which left around 7 a.m. The trip to Montevideo would take about two and a half hours. He put on a dress shirt, a light-colored suit, and a tie. I can just picture it, although Zuckers was rarely photographed wearing a suit. It was as if he was going to his first day on a job, dressing for success. He said goodbye to his family. His flight was Air France, Flight 83. He got to the airport early and sat in the departure lounge. He must have been excited, worried, too. It was a big deal for him, this whole thing. He wanted a different sort of life. He knew that, at 64, he wouldn't get many more chances. So he was taking a risk, a big risk, that Anton Kunzla was on the level. But even in taking a risk, he needed a little insurance. So underneath the suit was his 9mm Beretta. In 1965, you could still carry a gun on a commercial flight. It wasn't until the late 60s, when there was a rash of hijackings in the U.S., mostly by radicals who wanted to go to Cuba, that the policy changed. Zuckers carried his gun in a leather holster as he boarded the plane and headed off 
into what he must have imagined was his new life. I'm Stephen Talty, and this is Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. So if the first part was to find a Nazi and bring him for a trial, the second part was to find a Nazi and kill him. We must thwart this shameful process. The end of a trail of blood and horror. The end of a man whose name will be written in infamy. Episode 9, Judgment Day. The men in the Mossad kill team were spread out in various hotels across Montevideo, Uruguay. They woke up early on that February morning and began to get ready for the butcher's arrival. Mio had the first assignment. He had to go to the airport and pick up Zuckers. He had to check Zuckers into the hotel and confirm their seats on their flights to Chile. He had to convince the butcher they had a busy day ahead, which would include driving around the city looking at properties. They also would stop by Casa Cubertini for a look at the company's temporary headquarters. It was a full schedule. Mio didn't want to give Zuckers much time to think. The agent got up, showered, and took Librium. Mio had a condition he sweat a lot. And because he was concerned the paranoid Zuckers might take his sweating as a sign of nervousness, Mio had planned ahead. He'd gone to a drugstore back in Paris and asked the pharmacist to recommend something. The man prescribed an anti-anxiety drug called Librium. And when Mio had tested it, he found it cured his problem. So Mio took his Librium. Then he dressed and took the elevator down to the lobby As he passed by the newsstand, the headline on one of the papers there read, Bond government will discuss tomorrow the investigation of Nazi crimes. The story covered a meeting about the amnesty debate coming up in the German parliament. The amnesty was getting more and more international attention. In the US, the NAACP had added its name to Simon Wiesenthal's letter. Pressure was building both for the amnesty and against it. At one point, Politicians in Germany tried to avoid a crisis. Pro-amnesty legislators made an offer to the anti-amnesty forces. They would change the statute if ordinary SS men who'd killed during the war were given an amnesty. To some, it wasn't such a crazy idea. Many countries gave soldiers a free pass for crimes that were committed on the battlefield, and sometimes off the battlefield. It had been done before. The amnesty opponents agreed to consider the offer. But when they read the actual text of the proposed statute, they were shocked. It wasn't just ordinary soldiers that would go free. It was, quote, all perpetrators within the nationalist socialist administrative machinery, unquote. Who that included wasn't spelled out exactly, but it sounded like every Nazi. Every camp commander, every criminal, every killer like the butcher free forever. They rejected the deal. There were other stories coming out of Germany, too. Some of them were kind of strange. One journalist had written to the justice minister 
something had occurred to this journalist. Adolf Hitler had never been indicted for ordering the killing of six million Jews. What if he'd survived the bunker where he'd supposedly committed suicide? What if his death was a fake? Some people believed that he was alive and well and living out his life in hiding. So the journalist asked the justice minister a question. If the amnesty goes into effect, could Hitler walk down a Berlin street without being arrested? The justice ministry, well, they kind of freaked out. They didn't know the answer to that question. They found some war crimes experts and asked them, could Hitler face any jail time? The answer was yes and no. The former Nazi leader could be charged with political crimes, with abusing the power of the state. That was true, but he couldn't be charged with his main crime, murder. That was disturbing, so the German courts did something about it. 20 years after the Fuhrer had supposedly died, they opened proceedings against him. They even requested an arrest warrant in his name. It made newspapers all over the world. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported, if Adolf Hitler returns from the dead, he will have to answer for his crimes. It was kind of a novelty story. Hitler was dead. Who really cared what he was charged with? But the incident did make a point. There were hundreds, maybe thousands, of killers out there who didn't have an arrest warrant in their name. If the amnesty passed, Hitler could still be thrown in prison. But the men who killed in his name, they would be untouchable. By now, thousands of people around the world had marched against Germany's planned amnesty. In Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, New Orleans, Washington, Tel Aviv, and Paris, there were protests. A journalist interviewed one of the marchers in Toronto. She told him, I am the only survivor of Bergen-Belsen of my entire family. I am so lonely without my relatives. The full debate in the German parliament was scheduled for March 10th, two and a half weeks away. The Mossad team was cutting things close. Maybe they thought the fresher Zucker's crimes were in the minds of German legislators, the better it was for their cause. Maybe it just took this long to get the butcher into position. But they knew they didn't have a lot of time to mount another mission if things went wrong. Neil was composed, but tense. He wrote later, An exciting chapter in my life was about to come to an end. Six months of a constant war of wits, tension, and uncertainty, and the tireless efforts invested in order to bring us to this moment. He thought about his parents, but he was focused on the mission. Yariv was also up early that morning. He wanted to get a look at Zuckers to see what he was wearing. That way, he could identify him on site so there'd be no mistakes later in the day. As Mio got into his rented VW Beetle, Yariv was already driving to the airport. He would stand in the visitor's gallery with the families and friends of passengers arriving on different flights. Yariv would hang out with them and hope to get a look at the butcher when he finally showed up. Sudit, Amit, and Kafir had their breakfast, then headed to Casa Cupertini. They had perhaps the most difficult job, waiting. The plan was for Mio to lead the butcher into the house the kill team would rush and immobilize him, then the verdict would be read out. We planned a very brief uh, court-martial in which we intended to read the charges to him. 
in the name of the 30,000 Jews from Riga and Latvia. Children, women, the elderly, and men who had been murdered by him over 20 years ago. We wanted him to know that this entire long affair with Anton Kunzle had been designed only to set the stage for the moment of revenge in the name of his innocent victims. And then we were going to put a bullet in his head. After Zuckers was dead, they would put him in the leather trunk and they would leave a printed version of the verdict with the body to explain why the assassination had been carried out. The world would know the truth about Herbert Zuckers and men like him. There was one line in the verdict that I thought was especially interesting. The entire long affair had been designed only to set the stage for the moment of revenge. It was clear that the team wanted Zuckers to know that he'd been tricked and betrayed by Anton Kunzla, a man who didn't really exist. I wondered why. Maybe it was because Zuckers himself had betrayed many of his Jewish friends and acquaintances in Riga. He drank with them before the war, made them believe he was their friend, and then he'd murdered them. Many survivors talked about how this double cross made the war years even more painful for them. Now the Mossad team wanted to reenact that betrayal with the butcher himself. He wouldn't just be executed. He would be executed in the same way that the Jews of Latvia had gone to their deaths. Mio got to the airport early and went to the visitor's gallery. He looked at the arrivals board. Zucker's flight was listed as on time. He inspected the people around him. He spotted Yariv, his face turned away from Mio. They didn't want anyone to see that they knew each other, so they didn't even exchange a glance. At around 9.30 a.m., Air France Flight 83 touched down. The airplane stairs were pushed to the door, and passengers began coming out. Mio could see them clearly. Finally, Zuckers emerged. He spotted Mio and held up one hand, making a V for victory sign. He was smiling from ear to ear. Mio smiled back. The butcher seemed to be in a good mood. As Zuckers waved to him, Mio could see the handgun that he was carrying in the shoulder holster. Mio knew he usually liked to travel with a gun, but now it was confirmed. This meant that if the team failed to bring Zuckers down, he might be able to wound or kill several of its members. Mio felt his anxiety creep up. Yariv, standing among the families, spotted Zuckers too. He recognized him from the photographs he'd studied in Paris. He memorized what the butcher was wearing, then turned and slipped away from the crowd. He headed back to the parking lot, where he jumped in his car and drove over to Casa Cupertini. Meanwhile, Zuckers found Mio waiting for him. The two shook hands. Zuckers was smiling. He passed on greetings from his wife and children, and he asked me to catch him up on our plans. I told him, believe me, only the best. I told him, we have great plans, and you're part of them. The two walked to the VW and headed towards the city. Mio drove as naturally as possible, chatting with Zuckers, watching his speedometer. 
he made sure to stay below the speed limit. When Mio parked in front of the Victoria Plaza Hotel, Zuckers took his suitcase and went to check in. He had room 1719. When he came back down from dropping off his luggage, he was happy. He remarked to Mio, what a beautiful room. They went to the airline office. Mio wanted to confirm their flight from Uruguay to Chile. Knowing that they had tickets out of Uruguay would help convince Zuckers that nothing out of the ordinary was going to happen. Why wouldn't an assassin spend money on plane tickets they weren't going to use? The two went to the office. As Mio confirmed the tickets, he spoke loud enough for Zuckers to hear. Later on, during the investigation of the whole matter, the clerk said that he thought the two men were friends. Mio's acting was pretty good. After they had the tickets, Mio and Zuckers went to meet with a real estate agent. They toured a few houses, looking for deals for Kunzla's company. Every time they visited a house, Mio made sure to enter first. Then the butcher followed him in. One last bit of conditioning before they headed to Casa Cubertini. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. 
Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hey, this is Stephen Talty, the host of this podcast, Good Assassins Hunting the Butcher. This podcast project came out of my work on a related book called The Good Assassin. If you want to explore other parts of this story, check it out. It's not just a book version of the podcast. I spend time on different aspects of the mission. There are chapters diving into World War II history that we didn't cover in the podcast. And the book works as a kind of a companion to the listening experience. You can purchase a copy of The Good Assassin on Amazon, Apple Books, and on bookshop.org. Thanks. After they'd visited a few properties, Neil looked down at the fuel gauge. It was getting low. He pointed this out to Zuckers, and they pulled into a nearby gas station. Neil had let the fuel run down on purpose. Across the street from the gas station, a red car was parked. Inside the car was the local Jewish man from the foreign service that Yariv had found to act as a lookout. He watched as Mio filled the tank, then took off. He would report back to the kill team that the two men were on schedule. Mio and Zuckers looked at a few more houses. Then Mio told the real estate agent that they'd think about it. He'd call him tomorrow, let him know about their decision. It was another psychological cue to Zuckers. We have plans for tomorrow. We have a flight to Chile. Nothing bad is going to happen. It was about noon at this point. After they left the real estate agent, Mio and Zuckers got back in the car. Mio had a sudden idea. The house he'd rented as a headquarters was close by. Why didn't they go and have a look? It wasn't up to his usual standards, but he wanted Zuckers to see it. The butcher agreed. They headed toward the ocean, drove through the Carrasco neighborhood, and as Fernando Puduzoni tells us, into Shangri-La. It was an ordinary Tuesday. Not too much traffic, pedestrians strolling by, people going to lunch. At the Casa, the kill team had undressed down to their underwear. If Mio's reports had been correct, the encounter would be bloody, and they didn't want the evidence of a struggle on their clothes. They waited in the hot, humid room, listening to the workers' banter next door and the noise of their tools. They checked their watches. Mio and Zuckers reached the Casa Cupertini. As Mio pulled into the driveway, he saw the four or five men working on the house next door. They might hear what was about to happen, but there was no turning back now. The kill team was inside. The target was here. Now all Mio had to do was get him into the house. Here we are. This is the house. Mio stopped the car, put it in park, cut the engine. Before Zuckers could say anything, Mio was out of the car and walking toward the front door. This is it, I thought. This is the moment of truth. He must follow me now. 
From the corner of my eye, I could see Tukers get out of the car. Still walking, I had already pulled the house keys out of my pocket. Tsukers was about 10 or 12 feet behind me. Mio put the key in the lock, turned it, grabbed the handle, and pushed the door in. It was kind of dark inside, no lights on. The four Mossad members were lined up on either side of the door. Mio gave them a quick glance, then positioned himself behind the open door. The men listened. They could hear Zucker's footsteps as he approached the house. Then, suddenly, the butcher was coming through the door. The change from bright sunshine to semi-darkness blinded him for a split second. That's when Mio slammed the door shut behind him, and the kill team pounced. Three of the men grabbed at Zucker's arms to immobilize him. The last one, we're not sure who it was, dashed behind him, preparing to execute the Krav Maga maneuver, a single downward blow that would drop the butcher to his knees. But immediately, all hell broke loose. Zuckers pushed the men away and started shouting. The agent behind him couldn't give the knockout blow. Zuckers was too quick. He was already turning to run back out of the house. He shook off the Mossad agents, thrashing at them with his arms. Zuckers' worst nightmare had come true. He'd realized immediately he'd walked into a trap. But Mio's nightmare, the thing he'd fear the most, it was also coming true. The butcher was attacking the Mossad agents, and he was winning. He fought like a wild and wounded animal. He freed one hand, grabbed the door handle, and tried to pull it open. We leaned against the door, trying to push him into the center of the room. The fear of death gave him incredible strength. Zuckers was screaming, bellowing. He pulled back on the door handle and it came ripping out of the wood. He seemed to have this superhuman strength. The others grabbed at his arms, his throat. They tried to beat him to the ground, but nothing worked. In the chaos, Mio heard a voice. The butcher was shouting something. It was in German. Let me speak. Let me speak. Zuckers must have known why he was being ambushed. Clearly, these were Jewish agents and he wanted to talk to them. This I found fascinating. What was the butcher going to say? Did he think he had an explanation for 30,000 murders? What could he possibly have said that would have calmed these Avengers and caused them to stop the mission? It didn't matter. Mossad agents didn't want to listen, and the fight went on. The men wrestled with each other in a fury. In the melee, Zucker's glasses dropped to the floor. And then something really bad. Zucker's was, of course, armed. The pistol was in the leather holster. It was the Beretta that he'd shown Mio months before when he'd visited Zucker's home. Now Zucker's shoved one of the Mossad men away and reached for the gun. The men rushed at Zucker's. Mio had joined in by now. The team was getting desperate. Yariv grabbed at the butcher's face. He was trying to get his hand over Zucker's mouth to stop him from screaming and alerting the workers next door. But his index finger slipped into Zucker's mouth. The butcher immediately clamped down and bit off the tip of his finger. Yarif snatched his hand away, screaming in pain. They were all gasping now, trying to bring the butcher down. But then one of the team members, we don't know who, spotted something lying on the floor. It was a hammer that had been left behind after some recent work on the house. He snatched it up, turned towards Zuckers, and brought the hammer down on his head. Blood went everywhere. 
Some even spread it up on the ceiling. Investigators would later find it there. Zuckers was badly wounded. His skull was fractured, blood pouring down his face. And yet, he still kept fighting. It was almost hard to believe how tough he was. Finally, one of the Mossad men grabbed his gun from the pile of clothes. He came up to Zuckers, whose face was partially hidden by the blood flowing over it, and fired two bullets into his head. Zuckers collapsed to the floor and lay still. The only sound in the room was from Yariv. He was moaning in pain, holding his wounded hand. They needed to get it taken care of, but first they had some business to attend to. The men stood there, listening for a moment. They didn't hear any police sirens, and they could hear the voices of the workers next door. The workers didn't seem to be anxious. They were talking normally, so it seemed that nobody had heard the shots. Sudit went to the backyard and turned on the hose. One by one, the men went out to wash the blood off. Then they put their clothes on and went back to Zucker's. His shirt was soaked with blood. They went through his pockets and found his passport. They took the Beretta, then dragged the leather trunk out of another room and lifted Zucker's body into it. When the body was inside, Mossad men placed two pieces of paper inside a folder on top of the body. The first was a verdict. Considering the gravity of the crimes of which Herbert Zuckers is accused, notably his personal responsibility in the murder of 30,000 men, women, and children, and considering the terrible cruelty shown by Herbert Zuckers in carrying out his crimes, we condemn the said Zuckers to death. He was executed on February 23rd, 1965. It was signed, Those Who Will Never Forget. They laid a second document inside the folder. Mio never mentioned it. He talked about the verdict, but not this other piece of paper. I was able to find out what it was through police and newspaper reports. It was from the 1945 Nuremberg trials, where the leaders of the Nazi machine were put on trial by the Allies right after the war. The page was part of the testimony of a man who saw a large group of Jews being murdered in the Ukraine. The British chief prosecutor, Sir Hartley Shawcross, read this testimony in front of Nazi war criminals sitting in the defendant's box. And it's haunting to hear, even today. Without screaming or weeping, these people undressed, stood around in family groups, kissed each other, said farewells, and waited for a sign from another SS man who stood near the pit, also with a whip in his hand. During the 15 minutes that I stood near, I heard no complaint or plea for mercy. I watched a family of about eight persons, a man and a woman, both about 50, with their children of about one, eight, and 10, and two grown-up daughters of about 20 or 24. An old woman with snow-white hair was holding the one-year-old child in her arms and singing to it and tickling it. The child was cooing with delight 
the couple were looking on with tears in their eyes. The father was holding the hand of a boy about 10 years old and speaking to him softly. The boy was fighting his tears. The father pointed to the sky, stroked his head and seemed to explain something to the boy. A few moments later, the family was dead. Why did Mio and the others include this account? He never said, but I think it was placed there because it was about the victims. They were the real reason that Mio and the other agents were inside Casa Cupertini on February 23rd. When the news about Zuckers went out into the world, Mossad didn't want the mission to be just about the butcher. They wanted the murdered Jews to be remembered too. At least, that's my guess. With the verdict read and the trunk closed, the men were almost done. Yariv told the team, We clean and we vanish. So they wiped down the walls and tried to make sure they hadn't left any clues behind. Then they left. Mio dropped off his car on the street near the hotel, and the others did the same with their rentals. They took care of some other small details, and then they met at a cafe in downtown Montevideo. There they had a drink. We were at one with ourselves and our deed. We felt proud of having the privilege of taking part in this operation. After they finished their drinks, the men got up and left the cafe one by one. They took two separate flights to Buenos Aires, sitting apart from each other. By the end of the day, they were all out of Uruguay. Neil had one thing left to do in South America. He wrote a letter to the butcher's family to throw them off the trail. He addressed the letter to Zuckerts himself as if he didn't know the man was dead. In it, he said that he'd found out they'd been followed in Uruguay by two strangers. Mio wrote that he'd fled to Chile in order to get away from these mysterious people. He implied that he was a Nazi war criminal himself, but that he and Zuckers had escaped some kind of kidnapping attempt. He sent the letter in a large envelope to a friend in Chile, who put stamps on it and mailed it to Zucker's family in Sao Paulo. It would buy the team some time to get back to Europe to get rid of their cover identities. The family would think that Zuckers was still in Uruguay and that there was no need to call the police. In Buenos Aires, the Mossad agents boarded their flights back to France. When he arrived in Paris, Neil went to a branch of the bank he'd opened an account at under the name of Anton Kunzler. He withdrew the money and closed the account. He got rid of the passport and anything that connected him with the Austrian businessman. The others did the same with their documents. It was over. The mission had been a success. Now they waited for the story to hit the headlines. By now, it was early March. The debate about the statute of limitations was a week away. Mossad was hoping that the body would be discovered and that stories about the butcher and his terrible crimes 
would run in newspapers and on TV channels all over the world. Soon. Mio and the others were now living ordinary lives in Paris. They went to breakfast, went to the movies, socialized with their friends. But every morning they bought newspapers and scanned them for the news. A couple of days passed. Then another. There was nothing on the TV or in the papers. Mio and the others started to get nervous. It turned out that the team had made a crucial mistake. It was a mistake that revealed a blind spot in their training and in their view of the world. As Mossad agents, the five men were trained to hide from the press. They avoided journalists at all costs. Publicity was poison for a spy agency. And so for years, they'd been taught how to conceal facts to avoid attention. That was great, except for when you needed attention. Their training had made them ignorant about how reporters actually worked. They thought the body would just be discovered, like, by accident. They never really thought about how that would happen. They'd hidden their tracks too well. No one was looking for Herbert Zuckers, and no one knew about the body in the trunk. The whole point of the mission was slipping away. Finally, the Mossad agents started calling newspapers in Germany to report the assassination. No response. The reporters they spoke to thought they were cranks. Something about a body in a trunk and Nazis and never forgetting. What was that even about? Journalists are busy. And Uruguay was on the other side of the world. Mio and the others had no idea how to get a reporter interested in a body in some random house in Montevideo. So they wrote letters describing the mission and why it was done and they sent them to a bunch of news agencies. One of them reached a reporter. We don't know his name, but he read the letter and thought it was interesting. He decided to call the police in Montevideo. When he reached them, he asked about a murder of a Nazi named Herbert Zuckers. Did they know anything about it? They didn't, but murders get attention. The file landed on the desk of the head of the Uruguayan Intelligence Service a man named Alejandro Otero. And according to Uruguayan writer Fernando Budizoni, this wasn't the type of thing he typically handled. Look, the intelligence service in Uruguay was a joke. Uh, and Otero was the chief of, the, of this joke. In fact, prior to this, Otero's main qualification didn't exactly have much to do with intelligence or law enforcement. He was the chief of the teeny Uruguayan intelligence service, a young man, very competent, who also was a soccer referee in the 60s. And in Uruguay, the soccer is very popular. So Otero was very, very popular. But despite his inexperience, Otero assembled some officers and got in a patrol car to try to crack the case. He wandered around Shangri-La for few days. And I think that in the end, the smell of the corpse guided him to the house. This is true. The officers knocked on the front door. No answer. But they smelled the stench coming from inside. And it was horrible. They went around the side and broke a window with the butts of their guns. They broke into the house. As they entered, 
they noticed dark splotches, almost black, on some of the walls. They saw the leather trunk. Next to it were two shell casings, 22 caliber. There were also parts of a gun on the floor. It had been broken apart. The officers broke the lock on the trunk and pulled up the top. When they looked inside, they saw a bright red folder laying on what appeared to be a body. They had found Herbert Zucker's. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hi, this is Stephen Talty, host of Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. The folks that helped me bring you this show, Diversion Podcasts, have just launched another podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Backstaged, The Devil in Metal, a deep dive into the history of metal music, filled with never-before-heard interviews and stories from some of the biggest names in music, including Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Van Halen, and many others. It's outrageous, raw, and surprising at times. Backstage, The Devil in Metal is out now. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Back at the station, Otero began to develop 
a basic theory of the case? I think that he understood several things from the beginning. First, that it was the work of the Israelis. And second, that it was an international action done by professionals. And at the same time, news of the assassination started to break in Uruguay. And it left quite an impression on a young Fernando Budizoni. In 1965, I was 11 years old. I remember, of course, the Sucur's assassination was a shock. This was a, a incredible situation. An international criminal killer in, in my country? No way. Of course, at 11 years old, I could already hear the adult conversation and see the front page of the newspapers and the magazine. And I remember the pictures on the front page. Cuckoo's body in the trunk. All that was very terrifying to me, really. Otero would eventually drop his investigation. He didn't want to ignite an international crisis. But before he did, he traveled to Brazil to meet with Zucker's family. And it left a lingering impression. I interviewed him many years ago, and he told me that Zucker's family was unreliable, especially the widow. He thinks that the family was a dark family. I don't know why. At this point, the news of the assassination was starting to break around the world. The Mossad team, still in Paris, caught it as the lead story of the French evening news. L'exemple d'Herbert Soucours est là pour le prouver. En effet, le 6 mars, la police de Montevideo se rend sur renseignement dans un chalet isolé. Elle y découvre une malle, et dans cette malle, le cadavre d'un coup de... And it ran in Germany, Israel, the U.S., and other countries. Journalists flocked to Montevideo to look into the mysterious killing of a Nazi war criminal. Conspiracy theories started sprouting everywhere. One rumor was that air holes had been found punched into the leather trunk. That would indicate that someone had been trying to kidnap Zuckers, but had to kill him instead. Others believed that Zuckers had been part of a Mossad plot to catch Joseph Mengele, the butcher of Auschwitz, who was supposedly hiding out in South America too. The story went that Mossad had made a deal. If Zuckers lured Mengele out of hiding, he himself would be allowed to go free. Through all this public speculation, Mossad stayed silent. As usual, they didn't confirm or deny being involved. But everyone knew it was the Israelis. In Germany, as articles about Herbert Zuckers appeared in the press, one of the major networks announced they were going to televise a debate on the statute of limitations. It would air live. It was rare to do that in Germany at the time, but the issue was getting unprecedented attention from the media. Tickets for the visitors' gallery at the Bundestag became hot commodities. There were dozens of requests for every seat. Ich glaube kaum, dass man angesichts solcher Tatsachen, die von verschiedenen Seiten aufgestellt Finally, March 10th arrived. The debate in the German parliament 
began. The conservative government still backed the amnesty. They wanted to put an end to Nazi trials, to draw a line under the Holocaust and move on. The liberals, for the most part, believed that was wrong. A full accounting of the Holocaust had never been made. There were still killers out there living happy and free. They had to face justice. There was one liberal who went against his party. He supported the statute. His name was Adolf Arndt. The son of a law professor, the 60-year-old Arndt was a tall, schoolmasterish guy with a serious legal mind. Arndt had refused, on principle, to join the Nazi party before World War II began, and he was fired from the position as a judge because of it. Instead, he used his skills as a lawyer to help Jews escape to the U.S., England, and Switzerland. After being categorized as half-Jewish himself, he was interned in a work camp in 1943 and forced to do hard labor. The following year, he was arrested and sent to prison. And yet, Arndt felt that changing the statute would only make things worse. Other regimes in the future might change laws retroactively to accuse their enemies of crimes. The law should be sacred. That was Adolf Arndt's position. That afternoon, as millions of people tuned in on television, Germans were literally debating the meaning of the Holocaust. How long should his killers be hunted down? How many people shared in the guilt? Speaker after speaker got up to argue their side of the issue. It went on for hours. Finally, Adolf Arndt rose to speak. He'd supported the statute for months. The fact that he was half-Jewish gave credibility to the pro-statute side. If one of Hitler's victims said to keep it, who could argue with that? But as Arndt began to speak, his fellow legislators went silent. Something was happening. It became clear as the minutes went by that Arndt had changed his mind. He was coming out against the statute. In his speech, Arndt talked about a representative Nazi killer, the kind of perpetrator who would receive an amnesty if the law went ahead. A man who takes an infant by the feet in front of his mother and shatters his head on the nearest iron post. A man who has 20,000 or 30,000 people shot or killed. A man who trains his dog so that he tears apart a prisoner's genitals before the prisoner is put to death in the most cruel way. A man who forces prisoners to kneel in the pits they have dug themselves, then gives them the neck shot, and then the next victim comes in. So that for days, a fountain of blood splashes out of this mass grave. One cannot say of this man, why is he still dealing with his act today? That number Art mentioned jumped out at me. 20 to 30,000 people. It was the same number, that 30,000, that was included in the verdict that the Mossad team had left on Zucker's body. It was in many of the stories that ran after the news of the assassination was made public. 
Was it just a coincidence that Arndt, as he changed his mind, seemingly at the 11th hour, mentioned the exact number of victims that Herbert Zuckers had been accused of killing? I'm not 100% sure, but it seems unlikely. Chances are Arndt had read about Zuckers and what he'd done during the war, and it had affected him. Here's Gat Shamran again, the ex-Massad agent. There's no doubt in my heart that the Tsukur's operation was successful in the fact that in 1964-65, the, the, the waves brought up after the Eichmann kidnapping were already going down. And there were talks in Europe, especially in West Germany at the, the time, of uh, maybe it's time to, to make a line. You know, and uh, forget what happened 20 years ago. We look for the future. Let's let's decide no more Nazi huntings, no more Nazi trials. What they call a Strichlein, called in German. Strichlinie, that's the right German word. And um, this was the reason for the operation. And uh, uh, once the body of Tsukur's found in Montevideo, and the uh, vote in the Bundestag a few days later rejected the proposal of making Nazi crimes. Okay, finished, 20 years. So, you know, it's something you cannot quantify, but I do believe it uh, had repercussions and it had the right repercussions desired by those who decided to go for this approach. If it hadn't been for Adolf Arndt's speech, and his mentioning of the 30,000 victims, I wouldn't be so sure. There were big questions being debated. Guilt for the death of millions, Germany's future, and Germany's guilt. It's hard to imagine that one assassination in a distant country could have turned the tide against the amnesty in this German politician's mind. But Zuckers gave a face to the Holocaust. The stories about his atrocities were so terrible, and the news of the assassination was so fresh it might have lingered in the minds of some legislators. As Gad Shimran said, it's impossible to say for sure, but it's clear that the mission made it known that there were still many more butchers out there. When the votes were counted, it was 96 votes in favor of the statute, 361 against, and four abstentions. In the end, the time period for prosecuting Nazi criminals was extended for five years. The killers would not get an amnesty. In the months and years following the Zucker's mission, hundreds of Nazi mass killers were discovered and prosecuted. And perhaps more importantly, the idea that it was only Hitler and a few of his lieutenants that caused the Holocaust began to change. The prosecutions brought to light the role that thousands of Germans and their collaborators played in the genocide. A much fuller picture of how the Holocaust worked and who carried it out emerged. There were other factors, of course, including the rise of a new generation of Germans who hadn't been born when the Third Reich was in power. But the vote on the amnesty in 1965 was a turning point. Tuvia Friedman, the Polish Nazi hunter who'd fought so hard against the amnesty, was overjoyed by the result, as was Simon Wiesenthal. 
Five years later, the deadline for prosecutions was extended again for another five years. And then in 1979, the statute came up for a third and final vote. The count was much closer this time. 255 to eliminate any time limit, 222 against. Friedman and the others had won. There would be no amnesty for Nazi war criminals ever. Friedman wrote, Today, these murderers have been silenced until the end of their lives. Mossad never took responsibility for the Zucker's mission. That was just its policy. But many survivors in Israel knew who'd carried it out. People would come up to Mio in the street and thank him. He received letters from the families of those murdered in Latvia. And every year, the five men who'd carried out the mission gathered to remember. They would have a drink or two and talk about Montevideo and Casa Cubertini and the rest of it. After the operation, Yosef Yariv did well at Mossad. He was promoted to the head of the agency in Europe. And in 1971, he retired. Mio's career was less successful. He was frustrated. The Zucker's mission had been a huge success, but there were no promotions for him. The fact that he was an introvert not really a commander of men, it worked against him. And maybe something else. Most of the Mossad agents who rose to the top were Sabras, men born in Israel. Mia was a bit of an outsider. He'd been born in Germany and spoke with a strong German accent. It set him apart. Mia retired from the Mossad in 1981 and settled in a leafy neighborhood in Tel Aviv. Once in a while, When Mossad needed a certain kind of operative for a mission, they would call him up and he would come out of retirement for a week or two. But mostly, he spent his time spoiling his grandchildren. As the years went by, he would often look back on his career and talk about the missions that meant the most to him. When I spoke with Mio's son in Tel Aviv, he told me it was always the Zucker's operation that Mio was proudest of. For him was the pinnacle of his career, and really, of his life. Mio had led a mission that helped change history. But for me, serious questions remained. The main one was why Zuckers had done what he'd done. Even Mio, as good a spy as he was, never cracked that mystery. In the next episode, I'll tell you about the surprising answers I found and the brilliant Jewish woman who went through hell to reveal the truth about the Butcher of Latvia. Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by Stephen Talty. Produced and directed by Scott Waxman and Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Story editing by Jacob Bronstein, with editorial direction from Scott Waxman and Mangesh Hatikadur. 
Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. With the voices of Nick Afka Thomas, Omri Angle, Andrew Polk, Mindy Escobar Leantz, Steve Routman, and Stefan Rudnitsky. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Archival research by Adam Shapiro. Thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 